Hello and welcome to Faith Fitness and French Toast. As always, I'm your host, Moses Allwood, and I want to warmly welcome you back to the podcast. The purpose of this podcast is simple, to encourage, empower, and inspire athletes of all walks of life in their strength endeavors, faith walk, and of course, their best options for post-workout late-night meals. I'd like to thank my sponsor, Skull Smash Ammonia, Raw Grip Chalk, Tennessee Pre, and Primate Apparel for their consistent support and encouragement. For the best hard-hitting ammonia in the game, there's none better than Steve at Skull Smash. And if you're looking to hit a brutal pull and need that added grip, Raw Grip's Liquid Chalk is the highest quality on the market right now. If you're like me and you want that focus boost in your training without the caffeine crash, then Tennessee Pre is the pre-workout for you. And we are humble, but we are savage. Primate Apparel's mentality of sticking to your guns and standing up to those who do you ill is a vital part of my training. You can head over to any of their Instagram pages to get some products. Today, I have the privilege of chatting with Andrew Herbert, affectionately known as Herbie, whose prominence in the fitness industry is surpassed only by his humility. A police officer, a firefighter, and one of the best powerlifters alive, Andrew has left a lasting impact on not only his community, but the fitness industry as a whole. You don't want to miss a single minute of this episode as we discuss the state of the country, faith walk, and of course, food. So sit back, relax, and let's dive in. Andrew, what is going on, man? Hey, not much, man. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm grateful to, to get some time with you, uh, get to hear a little bit more about your story. Um, I think there are a lot of people who can benefit from it. I know Ed Cohen spoke so highly of you last week, uh, so it got me uh, even more excited to, to make this thing happen. Oh, man. Well, that, I mean, Ed Cohen's one of my heroes, man. So that's uh, that means a lot to me to hear that. I love that guy. Yeah, I, I laughed because I, <laughs> I had asked him to, to jump on at the end of the season and he goes, oh, I see you've got, uh, you got, you got Herbie coming on. I said, I sure do. He goes, tell him hi. I was like, all right. Goes, no, no, no. Tell him I said hi. I was like, all right, Ed. Uh, <laughs> so, um, but but yeah. nonetheless, so excited to, to just have this conversation. You know, anything from, you know, squatting heavy, which I know is something a lot of people love to do, to, to yeah. working kind of a unique opportunity in um, kind of as your work as both a police officer and firefighter um, yes. over in Sunnyvale. Um, yes, sir. I wonder, can we just start kind of at the beginning? Um, I wonder for those who who don't know you as well, how did you get involved in this crazy world of powerlifting? <laughs> so I, um, you know, I I grew, I guess, you know, I always played sports growing up, like the typical stuff, little league and and, and ba- basketball and, and soccer and stuff like that. But um, but even before that, I was kind of uh, had this natural obsession with strength uh in, in size and even it's very straight it's funny i was on a walk just yesterday looking at the uh the san francisco skyline from the east bay and um you know you can see the transamerica pyramid which is one of the, the skyscrapers in downtown san francisco and now there's this i think it's the salesforce tower which is above that and it reminded me of how as a kid i was obsessed with kind of the whatever the most is of everything what's the tallest building what's the because when I, the Transamerica Pyramid, as a kid in that city, was the tallest, mm-hmm. and I was obsessed with the Sears Tower because that was the tallest in the world at the time. And who's the tallest person ever? Who's the strongest person ever? Who's the the biggest person ever? I just everything that was the the superlative, so to speak, I was just kind of obsessed with. But strength, especially in that regard. And so, I mean, I'm talking age six or seven. Like I was just doing push-ups and just kind of kind of obsessed with that whole thing. And I think, I think part of it was just, you know, I did, you know, getting into like, like fights on the, on the schoolyard and stuff like that and realizing that, well, Hey, it's kind of, 
important to be in the few times like getting ganged up on by like multiple kids where <laughs> right. I was like, it would really help to be bigger and stronger. <laughs> so, and then couple that with watching the Arnold movies where, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like, you know, I forgot how into Arnold I was until, you know, with this shelter in place, my mom's been digging through old stuff and found a letter I wrote to Arnold. Wow. Handwritten, handwritten letter I wrote to him when I was like maybe nine or something like that. And I completely forgot about it, but, and I read it and it was like, page and a half long and just telling him how how like how much i admired him and wanted to be like him so yeah so that's the early start i mean i was begging my dad for weights already he got me a pair of dumbbells when i was eight um that then he heard the myth that it would stunt my growth so he took them away but (laughs) (laughs) but but uh but then at you know at age 11 you know he started my dad had always been an athlete um, but you know, he worked a, a ton when I was a kid, he was just his big thing was providing for the family. And, um, but he wanted to get back in shape. So he joined the YMCA where I was already playing basketball. And then he got the permission from them to take me into the weight room with him. So I started lifting like in an actual gym at, at 11 and then, you know, in high school and I kept playing normal sports. So that was just, it just ramped up from there. Uh, but it was always a secondary pursuit to the actual sports I was doing, which the main thing was wrestling. Wrestling was my big sport. Um, obviously, strength is a major component there. So they kind of went together. I mean, there was times when I think looking back, I, I wish I would have maybe backed off a little bit on the, the lifting a- aspect and just focused on wrestling because that's a much more limited time frame. You know what I mean? I wrestled through high school, through college. You know, after that, a little bit after college, but that it's kind of done then. But I still have, you know decades to lift and um and so i hit a a few year year gap where i kind of was just spinning my wheels in the gym i'd always been strong though that's the thing like like i'd been interested in it but also we kind of get interested in things that we're good at you know what i'm saying and so like you know i'd always been like the strongest kid in my class or one of them and, and that went all the way through college and i just uh finally in the gym had some guys who knew about powerlifting more than i did and, and convinced me to give it a shot. And literally that first meet, just it hooked me. You know, I was just like, oh, this is this is awesome. I want to do this. Well, you know, and, and I wonder if you can kind of remember, I think everyone remembers their first meet. You oh, know, that, I remember everything about it, yeah. So, so I wonder, you know, especially now, I mean, obviously you've competed at the height, you know, the boss of bosses, the current, like you've been at all the top levels. And I wonder what was that first meet like for you, you thinking back, those nerves and everything. I wonder if you could just describe what you even remember of that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So it, it's a really great memory for me because coming into it, it was just an experiment. You know, I, I thought, man, I might, I might hate this. I might, you know, I even had maybe a negative, uh, not impression cause I had no impression, but like expectation where I thought, Oh, it's just going to be like meatheads, like mm-hmm. ego lifting and stuff like that. Everyone's going to be a jerk, whatever. And, uh, so it was at a gym called old school iron which is in uh, Vacaville, California, sort of Central Valley area. Um, awesome gym. They throw lots of meats. I mean, I love that place. I know the guys who run it. They're all good peeps. So I highly recommend that gym and their meats to everybody. So was the Pacific Coast Open, February of 2014. And um, really, thankfully, the the, the two friends that kind of encouraged me to do it were also doing it themselves. So, like, nice. they they were there and, and all that. Uh, you know, the weight aspect, you know, I'd already cut weight plenty of times, made weight, you know, hundreds of times before that. So that wasn't even a thing. And I even went into it like not cutting weight. I was just like, oh, like I didn't go the day before 
like it's like a hour and a half, two hour drive from here. And, and I was, I was working a lot. So I was just, I just drove up the morning of, mm-hmm. you know, I, like I skipped breakfast, got on the scale, you know, made weight. I was like, okay, cool. Um, and, um, you know, I didn't have a belt. I'd never used a belt. Uh, I didn't, it was just one of my old wrestling singlets, you know, it was all very kind of rudimentary, but, uh, yeah, I just remember everyone was really nice. And, uh, <laughs> they're like backstage. I remember backstage I was warming up and I've always been pretty like lean and I'm warming up for squats. And a guy comes up to me, he's like, Hey, you know, you're, you're not allowed to be a power lifter with feathered quads. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, you know, I, <laughs> it was just, uh, okay. And, uh, and I still remember another very cool thing about it was one of the guys in my weight class who I was competing against. So this is at uh, 220. Uh, his name was Ben Autry. And he's a guy from, I think, Berkeley, California. And I don't think he competes anymore. Um, he's a little older than me, but really nice guy. Fantastic squat. Uh, I mean, just ass to grass, like Olympic style squat. And you know, he was more seasoned than I was. And in my mind, it's like, okay, we're competing against each other. There's that that tension and stuff like that. But it was he was like super nice. And he was actually like rooting for me and I was, and giving me advice and stuff like that. And I was like, what in the world? This is this is really cool. So I, mean, I ended up rooting for him. I ended up seeing him at other meets in the future. And that really set that positive impression for me. You know, and I ended up uh, you know, thankfully I won uh best overall lifter at that meet. Um I didn't. I didn't know that they they, they, forgot, they they forgot to give the award, and so like I got an email from the USPA president like a couple weeks later. It's like, hey, oh, just so you know, you uh, you won best overall lifter. I was like, oh, okay. Like, <laughs> I don't know what that means, but yeah, right, cool. yeah, cool. That sounds good. And um, yeah, and that was really it. Wow. Well, yeah. I mean, I think there is that unique thing. Those first few meets. You know, you you are you're meeting these athletes you've never known before. And obviously, at this point, you know you're you're not a huge animal pack guy. Like nobody, you're just a guy. Uh, and those people really are formative. Like I remember my first competition was a couple years ago, Tyson's Playground with a hundred percent raw. You know, it was this tiny USAPL offshoot. And you know, a friend just gave me his eight man strong singlet, and uh-huh. I went out there, and I had no idea what I was doing, but I was like, I knew I had a good time doing it. You know, and yeah. frequently that's how so many people get started it really is crazy because then you just look at the future and it's like wow that's where i came from yeah and i'll tell you like a couple the couple months of prep i had for it was definitely useful because so this Mm -hmm. the guy named his name is zach trahan and he's a personal trainer out here stuff like that he kind of is the one who said who told me oh gotta do this meet i'm gonna do it and i'll help you out for it and um and so we trained together let 24-hour fitness whatever and you know the commands was kind of the big thing Cause like I was, you know, I've been lifting for my whole life. So I had the habit of, you know, I'll just unrack the squat, 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 rack, you know, unrack the bench, 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 rack. And, and, and he, so it took me a while actually to really learn, okay, I got to follow these commands. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't have that, I would have been kind of um, like a fish out of water, I think. Yeah. And I, and I think that's what a lot of people run into. Uh, you know, if I, if I had a dollar for every time I've seen someone go in and they just, they press it off their chest. They're like, oh, they're waiting too long. Of course, they're just still sinking it down. And so it's the little <laughs> those little commands that people just don't think about. Oh, it, yeah. isn't, it isn't as easy as just the gym bro lifts that obviously you can do in your training. A hundred percent. Well, and, also, and it also highlights the importance of, you know, training that, that muscle memory, you know, in the sense of like you can – some people think, oh, I'll rise to the occasion – at a meet, mm-hmm. but they, you know, with the adrenaline and the, the, all the extra sounds that, you know, aren't normally in a gym when people are yelling at you and stuff, it's easy to lose focus. And so you have to practice those motor skills, 
you know, syncing your audio with your motor skills with the commands to actually do it when it counts. Well, so, and, and kind of speaking of, you know, doing it when it counts, I mean, I, I still remember, I think my, maybe my first interaction with you was, um, was in the midst of right after your nine ten world record squat, you know, at the current that I remember reposting it and just being like, holy shit. Like, I didn't know this was humanly possible. <laughs> um, but you know, and, and since then, you know, somehow you've managed to continue putting pounds on that squat, even though people may look at 910 and be like, that's a freak of nature. You've done 959 in training, you've hit 940 in comps. So in preparing for these huge lifts, I mean, what has really been the keys for you beyond your consistency and continue to even maintain composure under that massive load uh, in competition? So definitely, I mean, getting to the, the, back to the, like the importance of training. I mean, I think that's huge. Like just, re- you know, repetition is the mother of skill. And so like doing it so many times, trying to make the training environment emulate the competition environment as much as possible. Um, you know, I mean, I'm fortunate to have good at boss barbell club, like good equipment, good spotters. Um, and also enough people where like, if I am doing one of these big lifts and usually I'm doing it, especially for a rap thing. Cause you know, for rap, you have to have, you know, people there, like got my, my people rapping me and stuff. There is a already kind of an audience that forms. So you get a little bit accustomed to that sense of, Oh, a lot of people are watching me. And, and especially with the squat, that's important. A lot of people don't realize it until they actually are on the platform that like, cause in a gym, you kind of have your visual focus, you know, and sometimes it'll be like on a, on a bench in front of you or a point in the ceiling depends on how you want to direct your head. And then they get to a meet and this has even happened with me and I unrack it in a, in a foreign environment, so to speak. And I see just all these faces in front of me, right. like, Whoa, where am I going to focus? What, you know, and it throws you off. So kind of trying to anticipate that is big. Um, but you know, getting into that focus under the, the big weight, it's kind of, that's, I've always been, um, I guess maybe it's a kind of a, a gift that I've been good at, good at. Like it's one of those things where I, in school, you know, I, I struggled with like long-term stuff, you know what I mean? Right. Like, oh, hey, you've got a 25-page a paper due in three months, you know, and it was like, oh my God, you know, I procrastinate, I'd stress out over it and stuff like that. And it kind of, both in my job and in, in lifting, like I'm better at in the moment stuff, you know what I mean? Right. Focusing very intensely right now, right here, right now, and taking care of what has to be done rather than this like projecting, oh, do all this, like stuff so it just i don't know everything just like hones in like actually speaking of that the 910 squat which which is my my favorite lift actually of any competition lifts i've done and i didn't even realize it till long after it watching the video and i think someone else reposted it that as i'm doing it the song disturbed down with the sickness comes Mm -hmm. on and and I, so I was so blank and focused when I did it that I don't remember the song. I don't remember hearing it or anything, but it was really cool. It's watching it in the walkout because I had a very slow walkout. Mm-hmm. It's literally with the beat of the song <laughs> as I'm walking out. That's awesome. And, and I had no clue about that in, in reality. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's funny you mentioned it because I, I literally, I can picture the moment of just of walking up to a bar, preparing, you know, for your big lift in a competition, it really is. I mean, you kind of black out for about yes. 45 seconds. Oh yeah. Um, you know that because if you're focused on anything other than the fact that you've got weight on your back or over your chest, or you're about to pick it up, 
you're not going to make the lift. So that, oh. that's so interesting. You mentioned that because I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And, well, and there, and there's d- different degrees to it though, too. Like I, uh, you know, all my first meets were raw with sleeves, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, and with that, I pretty early on got into the habit of getting like very fired up for lifts. Like I had, you know, my good friend, Nishea, like she would handle me for a lot of my meets and she just smacked the shit out of me before, sorry, <laughs> smack, smack me up before I'd lift. And, um, you know, I use nose torque and stuff like that. And I found, you know, for a lot of stuff, I liked that. But when I started getting to the rap squats, like for the night that nine ten and other stuff like that, I obviously wanted to be fired up, but still kind of maintain some focus. So like I wouldn't do a lot of that, you know, super hype stuff. I would kind of like stay intense, but a more calmer version of intense, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, because it's so so technical that lift where I was like, I have no no margin for error, you know, with that much weight on my back. So uh, it's like a different kind of intensity, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, you mentioned a couple minutes ago, even just with your own job, um, that you are, you've got to be in the moment and that's got to be something you're good at. Like there's almost, there's not an option. You know, if, you, if you're in law enforcement, you have to be in the moment. If you're not in the moment, the moment's gone. So I wonder if you can yeah. speak into a little bit of that, of your own experience, you know, and especially this uniqueness of being both police officer and firefighter. Yeah, so... <clears throat> You know, I, you know, long before I, I got into, you know, first responder type work, um, you know, I'd been in enough, you know, I mean, wrestling in and of itself is, is similar, you know, in that you're, you're basically in a fight on a mat, you know, in front of right. a bunch of people. And, you know, and once you've wrestled, you know, several hundred matches and then in training, you know, thousands and thousands of hours, you kind of get, there's a saying that, you know, Dan Gable, one, another, you know, you mentioned, I mentioned how Ed Code's a hero of mine. Well, Dan Gable's another hero of mine. And, mm-hmm. He has a saying where he says, once you've wrestled, everything else in life is easy. And, you know, that's not true in the literal sense. I mean, there's plenty of things that are very hard other than wrestling, of course. But it it highlights – it's the same philosophy as in the movie Fight Club, one of my favorite movies. It's like where Brad Pitt or whoever says, you know, once you've been in a fight, everything else kind of seems less important. Mm -hmm. And I can totally agree with that. Like in in high school when I started getting serious about wrestling, you know, once I had that feeling of like, you know, I'm getting – choked i'm getting you know just slammed into a mat just the, the crap beaten out of me or i'm or i'm dishing it out you know but it's everything else seems less important like oh crap oh i got a b on that project whatever you know oh i, I broke up with my girlfriend whatever you know like everything else is like eh, you know i'm not it's not literally a like a life or death or a life or injury struggle and so that and i found in my job throughout you know that I'm, I'm not, I don't get nervous. I don't get shaken up when there's the potential for a confrontation. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had so many people ask me, Hey, don't you get scared? Don't you get scared? And, and this is not me trying to be like, Oh, you know, Billy badass. It's just like, you know, I think a lot of those emotions are very similar. They're on the similar wavelength, whether it's anxiety, nervousness, excitement, um, you know, you throw anger in there, you know, these are excitatory feelings and a lot of things are how we frame them. And so, you know, I, I guess both naturally, but also, Collectively, choose to frame things not in terms of being nervous or anxious, but in terms of being excited and motivated. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, and also sometimes kind of angry. Like I think you know, if if there you're, there is a bad guy, and, and you know, you have to do what has to be done, and, and say you know this, you know, um, you can't just be, <laughs> you can't be like oh I'm just going to be like super friendly here. And I I know right in this. Right now, particularly, that could be a kind of a sensitive thing to talk about. But sure. um, I think we we have to acknowledge that evil exists in the world, you know, mm-hmm. and um, without 
good people or trying to be good people, you know, confronting evil, uh, it, it creates a bad, bad environment. And so, um, and I remember a singular moment actually though, when I really realized that, Oh wow, I can actually, I'm kind of made for this is after college, but before I got into first responder work, I, I worked as a bouncer a lot all through college and after college. And I was working at a bar in San Francisco, kind of close to the Tenderloin. If anyone knows where Tenderloin is, it's not a good area. Um, but it was a little north of it, so it's like Polk Gulch. So it's, it's got a mm-hmm. crossover of decent stuff, but also some riffraff. And long story short, at the bar, you know, I, I saw some some beef happening inside and on the dance floor. And so I, you know, I, I talked to the people, thought I'd smoothed it over, but I kept an eye on them. And they come out front. And so most of my duties, I was out front, you know, checking IDs and all that stuff. It was just me and one other bouncer. Um, and I see these people out front. They start talking and they start fighting. And, you know, and I'm like, oh, crap. So my partner and I, we start trying to break up the fight and everything like that. And uh, one of the guys pulls out a knife all of a sudden starts stabbing uh, another guy in the stomach. And I actually was actually holding on to the guy. Actually, I think I was holding on to the guy getting stabbed. And I might have even been holding on to the stab. I'm not sure. It was like, obviously, those things happen very fast. Sure. It's, not, it's not like the movies. And um, and then the guy with the knife backs off, and he actually flees up north. He barricades himself in a Subway sandwiches shop on the corner. Um, the other friends are freaking out. And I, I look around, and everybody's freaking out. And I've got this guy here bleeding out from his stomach. And, and it was weird. I, I had this moment of clarity where I was like, I feel fine. I feel completely calm. You know, like, I'm not jacked up. And... And everybody else is freaking out. And so, you know, I was able to kind of tend to the the injured as much as I could, kind of coordinate incoming resources and just, yeah. And that's where I thought, wow, okay, this is, it was, took me aback. I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, it's, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. I, um, you know, I was chatting with Steve Johnson a few weeks ago. And of course he's done all this correctional officer work as well. Right. Um, and we were, we were swapping bouncer stories because I yeah. feel like that's a common theme of powerlifters doing security work, bouncing of some kind. It's decent money. You don't really have to do much. And when you do have to deal with stuff, it's usually hitting people. So, yeah. you know, they, <laughs> they yeah. don't want to do that. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely, I can imagine that tension. Um, and I mean, would you say that was really the pivotal moment for you where you're like, man, maybe I'm cut out for this kind of work? Yeah. I think the timing of it was pretty key because, you know, before that, I, I bounced a lot, so I'd been in, and I, even off of bouncing, I'd, I'd been in, you know, some physical altercations and mm-hmm. stuff like that, and and so I already had a feeling about that. But this was the first time where it was, it was really kind of like, oh, you know, someone basically got murdered in front of me, and he didn't end up. He was almost died. He went to the hospital. We found out he didn't he didn't die, but thankfully, but um, yeah, so that kind of stepped it up a little bit, and that happened to coincide with you know, I'd finished college. I was trying to figure out my life path from there. And, um, cause for me, you know, I, I had not projected, Oh, getting involved in first responder work, whether it was sure. EMT, police fire, I it hadn't really been on the agenda at all. Didn't have any family in it. Um, so it was around that time like that. I think I was at that time, it was either same time or just before I started actually getting my EMT training and cert- certific- certification. And so, but it stayed on my mind. And then I, I kind of, um, yeah, I just went forward from there. And, you know, I worked at the EMT on an ambulance in San Francisco for a little over a year. And then while I was applying to police and fire departments, actually, 
got picked up by the police department first, worked at a big city police department in that, that area, and then lateral transferred from there to a combined police and fire department where I've been ever since. Well, so, and, and I know this is a question I had, because I remember you, you chatted with, you were on the radio, I know, where they were kind of like, hey, like, this is our, our own Sunnyvale, you know, he's <laughs> 910 pounds. Um, yeah, yeah, I remember that, yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Then I wonder, you know, what what is the dynamic like? Because I'm sure very few towns can can recognize what the dynamic of police and fire together would look like. And so I wonder if you could talk into that a little bit. Absolutely, and I'm glad you asked, actually, because it's very apropos, you know, so literally yesterday, you know, obviously right now, on social media, there's a whole ton of conversation going on about public safety in general mm-hmm. and potential reforms and stuff like that. And uh, a friend of mine who I used to actually work with in a previous department, like he tagged me or whatever. He there was he posted shared a post of an article about the town I work in, saying like this is a town that doesn't have a police department. How do they do it? Mm-hmm. And he kind of tagged me and in the caption was like, Andrew, what are your thoughts about this it seems kind of like you know semantic window dressing you know and he was right you know and, and i i responded to it a few times so it's on my facebook page in case anybody's interested but it was a misconception in the, the like i've learned over the past 12 years the media i don't long story short i don't trust the media you know what i mean like i've learned in my job firsthand i've seen the media lie i've seen blatant misinformation just to get ratings and sensationalize. So it's, and I wish more people knew that, but you know, most people don't, I didn't know that until I got into the job, but this is just one case in point of that where it says, Oh, this town has no police department. How do they make it work? Of course that's appealing to people nowadays, but no, it is a police department. It absolutely is a police department. It is also a fire department. You know what I mean? It's, Mm -hmm. they're simply combined. It's simply, everybody is trained in both. And a lot of people, I would venture to say most people in the town, in the city don't know that. You know what I mean? It, like they, when you show up and occasionally they might recognize you like, wait a second, weren't you here for the, <laughs> for the heart attack? And now you're here for the, the burglary. And it's like, well, yes, we, we do both. And, um, you know, it, it just, uh, and it's the, the joke and I put it on the thing. It's like the, the, the saying goes, and it's true is that when you work on the fire side, like you can literally go one day to the next, like you, each year you're assigned to either the police or the fire division. Okay. But there's overtime spots on both sides. So I know guys will, will work patrol until a certain hour and then literally just change out and drive to the firehouse and work a fire shift or vice versa. And the saying goes, when you work on the fire side, people wave to you with five fingers. Mm-hmm. When you work on the police side, they wave to you with one finger. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, everybody loves a firefighter. But they 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 love to hate the police, you know, and it's and that's universal. Like I've crossed the country, talked to people, and it's just, that's the way it is. It's it's a damn shame, but you know, it's human nature. Yeah, I know. There's there's kind of that stereotype that I mean, I think you you've probably just verified that you know, especially you know, inner city gang stuff. They're more likely to call the fire department than they are the police because they're nervous if they call the police, police will help, but then they're going to arrest them instead of the firefighters just helping. Correct. And, and, and that is also, that's actually a potentially harmful misconception that mm-hmm. these people, that people have because, and it's another kind of frustrating thing is when people say like, oh, you know, the firefighters are the real heroes, you know, they go into this, they go into that. Not true. So in any of those call, any call where there's violence mentioned, oh, there's been a shooting, someone's been shot, someone's been stabbed, someone's been beaten, where, okay, medical services are needed, but violence is involved. Mm-hmm. 
the fire department does not go straight to it. The fire department stages is the term like several blocks away from a safe distance. The police go in first, they stabilize the scene and then they over the radio say, you know, it's clear for fire. And then fire comes in a lot. No one seems to get that, but like police are that the true blue first responders. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously if it's a, just a pure structure fire, that's different, but mo- those are increasingly rare in municipalities, you know, due to code regulations, sprinkler systems, things like that, like fire extinguishers and whatnot. So, you know, if a, if a, and I've seen, but I've seen this, you know, whether it's a, like even a drug overdose, unfortunately, you know, people will be hesitant to call because they think, Oh God, you know, friend overdose on heroin. We don't want the police to show up and get us in trouble. Sure. And they don't realize, and I've actually seen this where in the aftermath where I've dealt with people who have survived, but been very crippled by an overdose because they didn't get help fast enough. And, you know, people need to know there's a good Samaritan law. Basically, like, even, if, you know, that, the medical the, the medical aspect trumps the law enforcement aspect. You know what I mean? Like, if I, I've gone to overdoses, and it's like, sure, there's heroin lying on the table, there's syringes here, fuck that. You know, sorry, screw that. You know, we're going to treat the, the medical care and, and ignore that stuff. And people need to know that. Same with, oh, if someone's shot, yeah, the police are going to try and investigate but the priority is saving the life, you know? And so, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and even as you've mentioned this media portrayal, I mean, even the last really two or three weeks, I mean, the, the chaos that's ensued, obviously over this the tragic um, death of George Floyd, I, I wonder, and I know it's a sensitive topic for probably everyone that's going to be listening. Um, but I wonder just as you've seen the portrayal, there's the defund the cops, abolish the cops. There's a lot of, of movement to wanting to remove different funding for the police. And I wonder, as someone who's working in that department, what do you think is realistic? What do you think should happen? What do you think is probably just an overhype and emotional kind of analysis? Okay. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you're asking, you know, it's, it's one of those things where on the surface, I may be kind of like, Oh darn, you know, cause it is so sensitive mm-hmm. and I am fully aware that my views on it are not in line with the popular narrative. Sure. At the same time, I, you know, a lot of my, the way I live my life is I feel bound by duty to do stuff. And, um, and this is absolutely one where I feel that way. Like it's a frustrating thing. And I've talked about this on other podcasts and posts is this day and age, it seems like people, there's less and less kind of deference to expertise in the sense of, you know, there's a, the great economist Thomas Sowell has a quote where he talks about today about how like you know grade school kids are being told to like write letters to their congressmen about like nuclear energy or something like that, and he's like, it can take a very very intelligent person decades to understand nuclear energy, and we're telling kids to, and it's like now the 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 mantra is to have an opinion about everything, be outspoken about everything. Mm-hmm. Well, no, like if you don't know what you're talking about, it's it's better to to listen (laughs) and not, not run your mouth or run your keyboard. But, but the thing is everybody now feels compelled to be as loud as possible. Um, even when they don't have no clue, you know what I mean? And so like a case in point, you know, I, I, I grew up in a, in a city, a very diverse city, uh, fairly, a very liberal city. I was not a sheltered kid. I was involved in a lot of things, uh, both good and bad went to very good schools, got a good education on a multitude of things. I still had no clue what law enforcement entails until several years into being in the law enforcement profession. You know what I mean? It's like 
And so these people who have zero training and experience in it feel to- completely entitled to, to just post about how everything needs to change and all these reforms that need to take place. What other industry has that happened? You know what I mean? The fact of the matter, and that's the other thing. There's a le- you know, at, while there's less deference to expertise, there's also less deference to facts, evidence, and information. And that just bugs the bugs the crap out of me because if we look at the facts, and this is stuff from the CDC, I mean, it pretty much as like neutral as it gets. CDC, which everyone's been listening to for the coronavirus situation, right? Far more people die every year in hospital medical mishaps than are are killed in law enforcement interactions. Not even close every year. Is anybody vilifying the doctors? Is anybody vilifying the nurses? Is anybody protesting outside of hospital buildings? No. You know, and um, and that's where you know police are the easy scapegoat, the easy target. Yeah. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But one is we what we need to understand about ourselves is that we don't like authority. And, I, and I'm the same way. I've been stopped many times in my life. I've never enjoyed it ever. I don't know anybody who's ever enjoyed it. You know, right. As, hum, as human beings, we, we like to determine our own destiny. Yeah. And when we see authority or for, by force, if necessary, that we naturally have an aversion to that. We naturally don't like that. But like a lot of being in a civilized society, we have to realize our natural tendencies and control them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I've encountered plenty of people where my natural desire would be to punch them in the face. <laughs> right. Right. I don't do that because this is civilization. I recognize that that's wrong and I control that tendency. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that seems to be completely missing on the, on the narrative. And, um, you know, and, and so the people talk about defunding the police, they, they don't know what they're talking about. And then a lot of them have this idealistic sense. Like I was literally talking, discussing with a person recently and she literally said <clears throat> that, well, you know, I almost verbatim, like murderers and rapists. So she's talking about some of the worst people in society. Mm-hmm. They, they don't really know what they're doing. They're really just sick. You know what I mean? And they need treatment and stuff like that. And it's, mm-hmm. and it, I almost had an aneurysm reading that because, yeah. okay, if, if we don't differentiate between good and evil at some point, and, mm-hmm. and even at the easy points like that, what are we going to do? You know, and it's in the, and yes, some criminals, very e- evil people do have major, you know, mental health disorders or whatnot, but any mental health practitioner worth their salt will tell you, we don't have a, we can't hundred percent treat these things. It's not like, having high cholesterol and, oh, I'll give you a cholesterol pill and it lowers your cholesterol. It doesn't work that way. The brain is more complex than that. And so, sure, someone may have violent tendencies due to their mental condition, but, okay, we, we can't they can't be out in public like that. I mean, that's just right, right. the way it is. And I think a lot of these people, if they had ever been victimized or if a loved one of them had been victimized, they'd be singing a different tune. But the case, case of the point is right now we live in a time – where our in the first world, our level of comfort is so high. Mm-hmm. It is so high that we have the luxury, by and large, to never really witness or experience violence being victimized, you know, in a in a in a frighteningly terrible fashion. So we're able to spout off this nonsense in this kind of utopian ideal, which is just it's just not reality. 
No, it is. And, and, you know, it is, you know, that, that phrase first world problems, you know, yes. that, that it's usually, it's when we lose something that we're used to having, suddenly we're like, wait, why don't I have that? You know, the water gets shut off for an hour for them to fix <laughs> the light. And you're yeah. like, Oh my gosh, I'm so thirsty. I need water. And I'm like, no, no, you don't. You're just realizing you don't have something. Right. Think- oh my God. Starbucks made the wrong Frappuccino for me. <laughs> right. Oh, Oh, poor you. Yeah. And, and, and really case in point with that is more and more I've seen folks who have immigrated to this country from mm-hmm. all over, could be the Caribbean, could be Africa, could be Asia, could be South America, who have experienced non-first world problems, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Which invariably is, you know, a corrupt police force, real excessive, com- more commonplace brutality in the streets, whether from the police or other things like that. They come here, they see what's going on, and they're like, what the, f- what the heck? You know, like, you people have no clue how good you have it. You know what I mean? And and to be clear, I am not saying that there is not a problem. I am not saying that these things don't happen. 100%. And, and I, I believe there is 100% unanimity in that among everybody in law enforcement. Yeah. Okay. The saying goes, nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because they tarnish it for all of us. But I can unequivocally say that the vast, vast, vast majority of cops are good people that mean well. Mm-hmm. And I think that gets lost in the conversation as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, the more that we shift into this idea of social relativism of, hey, yes. like my truth is my truth and you can't speak to it. <laughs> right. and it's like, well, no, like your truth is wrong. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, really have that conversation anymore because no one wants to no one wants to have it. They think they're they know everything. It, it, exactly. Yeah. It totally goes with with like what I was saying. I mean, it's you know, and I've talked to people who've actually gotten offended when well everyone gets offended nowadays apparently <laughs> yeah. yeah so no surprise there but when i've likened you know the, the the narrative that oh some of these people are literally getting hunted down and murdered by police every day i've likened that with flat earthers yeah you know where basically like sure you know ba- based on what you see from the narrative or with flat earth what you just, if you look into the horizon yeah the earth looks flat sure if you look at the media yeah it looks like the police are hunting down and murdering people but if you dig just a little bit deeper, if you have a little bit of faith in the experts who actually do this stuff and study this stuff, like mm-hmm. in terms of the earth, the geologists, the folks who spend years and years and years in school studying the earth, they will tell you, no, it is absolutely round. You know what I mean? If you start to look at, oh, okay, the sun is setting and then the moon's coming up, you'd start to get, oh, it's it's freaking round. You right. Know, just, <laughs> just, you know, just like if you look at the CDC, the DOJ, the FBI, multitude of statistics and facts you will see that no, the police are not hunting down anybody and murdering anybody. You know the this. I don't know exactly what his title was, but a gentleman from the NYPD spoke recently, and he was very upset, understandably. And he's screaming about how talking about you know mothers telling their children that they're scared for them to walk to school because they'll get hunted down and killed by a police officer. And he exasperatingly yells, "That does not happen." And I can say that that does not happen. You know, there is there's not a case of that happening, uh, and uh, which is great. Um, but it's, it's insulting, honestly, when people think that, oh, that's a, a possibility, like, sure. And, and it's clear by the numbers too. I mean, that's the, just the, the disheartening thing. Like I thought it was established years ago in all elementary schools that the world is round, but there's mm-hmm. still these people that say it's flat, you know? And so same with the, the anti-police narrative. It's just, uh, it's, uh, disappointing. <laughs> yeah. Before my current department, I worked for a, a different department, uh, San Jose, large city out here, population over a million. And this is a re- regarding the defunding, the dismantling concept. 
I watched that for, happen firsthand. Okay, so I started working there. That was my first police department in 2008. The Great Recession started hitting, and we started getting our pay cut. We actually voted for it because the government told us that if we took a pay cut, they wouldn't lay off officers. Mind you, that department's been around since the mid-1800s, the gold rush, when most of California cities were, were developed, and had never had layoffs. Never, whether it's through World War I, World War II, the Great Depression, never had layoffs. We still voted for a 10% pay cut, which was substantial, as well as our pension and contributions went up. A lot of stuff happened. They froze hiring. They still laid off. Even though we voted for that, I got laid off. I personally got laid off. And it was simply based on my seniority within the department. I had several years on. I got laid off, first time in department history. And when I was sworn in, we had about 1,400 officers, which was still understaffed for a city of that size. It eventually got down to less than 1,000. Wow. Now, if you're doing the math, that is insane and guess what murders went up violent crimes went up property crimes went up everything went up lots of calls didn't even get responded to before i got before i, I left the department we were down to where calls that come into 911 are ranked on a one two three four five six level of priority normally we go to any of those you know like i say a, a collision car collision with you know minimal to no injuries okay not high priority but we still go you know um, it got to the point where we would literally only respond to priority one and two calls. I mean, that's like violence in progress, you know, major injuries in progress type calls. I mean, that's not a good situation. That's not what anybody wants to live in, but that literally was defunding of the police. So I think people don't understand <clears throat> just like no one understands how important the police are until they freaking need them. Right. You know what I mean? I've been to so many situations where people who absolutely hate the police but they needed them, and I showed up, and I could see the look in their eyes of just relief, like, oh, man, like, oh, you know, thank you, you know, and, and of course, after the call, they go back to hating the police, sure. but but in that moment, uh, they, they love the police temporarily, so I think people really need to kind of um, remove their heads from the sand and, and understand that, but anyway, let's go to the positive stuff. Well, yeah, and, and, and I'll touch on this briefly, you know, because I think I, I had this conversation with someone a couple of days ago right on that, where everyone is all cops are bad until they need someone to save their life. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone can go F12 and spray stuff. And then they're like, wait, actually I'm being attacked. I could really use some help. And it's like, no, keep that same energy. Like, don't call them. Like, don't call them. Let yeah. them take care of someone who actually <clears throat> honors what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to be philosophically consistent, go ahead. Uh, see how that works. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, well, so, you know, you've, you've been competing now for, for six years, uh, close to seven. You know, you've competed at a ton of boss of bosses. You from small meets, you know, from your first one to really the biggest of the big. You know, as you look ahead to your, you know, career in powerlifting and moving forward, what are kind of your hopes, dreams, ambitions? Like, what's next for you? Okay, so, <clears throat> um, one big thing was so my fir the first world record I set was the the sleeved total at two forty two. Mm -hmm. and it's it's kind of like one of those i hate to liken it to a drug you know but they, they talk about oh the first time you take a drug nothing's ever like that again or something but you keep chasing it um and you know like i didn't really have a feeling of like oh i didn't getting into the sport i had no thought about oh breaking world records or anything like that um i had some friends who said they believed i could and i was just like oh you're you're full of it whatever um but once it happened i was like wow this uh 
this is this is cool you know <laughs> um you know i felt felt good about myself for that and you know then it got broken again it's since been broken several times but like part of me just really wants to get that back you know mm-hmm. and um which is not a bad thing you know what i mean it's, it's a challenge i think you know part of a, a well-lived life is, is taking on challenges and, and, and pursuing those challenges kind of, you know, with uh, dogged determination. Um, so that's a big one, you know, cause I, 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 was, I like rap and, and on paper I'm better in raps, you know, but the, the rawer it gets kind of the, the better it feels to me, you know I mean? Yeah. I prefer competing in sleeves. So that sleeve record really kind of means the most to me. I've tried for the sleeve squat record a couple times uh, both times when Kevin Oak had it, uh, and both times where I'd come close to getting it in the gym, uh, or even getting it, but on the platform, trying it on my third, uh, not getting it. Um, so that's something I'd like to go for. I mean, Ke- you know, Kevin is Kevin's my friend, a uh, ton of respect for him, and uh, he is on another level uh, as far as sleeve squatting. You know, that's for sure. But you know, like like I said earlier, you know, that's it's good to have a challenge. You know, and. And I believe in myself. I believe I can. I mean, I believe he's going to bump his squat up too. So, so it's a daunting. <laughs> yeah. It's a daunting, ongoing challenge. Um, and you know, and Jamal, you know, my animal teammates on the scene with the total world mm-hmm. record, and I guarantee he's going to bump that up. So again, that's an ongoing, stiff challenge. But sh- man, I'm, I'm going to shoot shoot for the moon, you know. Um, and then, like in raps too, like. My nemesis is Yuri Belkin, you know, um, he's the only person I've ever lost to head to head. And, uh, you know, a lot of people regard him as the, the greatest powerlifter right now, you know, mm-hmm. with, with good reason. And, and I like Yuri, uh, you know, I don't, I wish I could converse with him more, but, uh, <laughs> you know, we've tried, <laughs> you know, once or one time we were trying to get on our Google translate to have a conversation, English to Russian and, uh, like the Wi-Fi went out. <laughs> and so we just like looked at each other like, Oh, uh, well, <laughs> uh, there it goes. But, um, <clears throat> but no, he, you know, he set the bar super high and, um, you know, when you taste defeat, you know, like he's beaten me, uh, twice, you know, it's like, you want to get, get, uh, some vengeance. And, um, and I believe I can, that's a stiff challenge as well. But, you know, then beyond that, I would like to try my hand at 275, you know, um, uh, you know, obviously both of those things are 242, but I've, you know, my, my side, I do all cut weight, you know, and I'm trying to do a little bit less of that just for kind of the, the health aspects. But I would like to try just, you know, kind of going ham on like, oh, okay, just not worrying about my weight, bulking up, you know, and, and not cutting weight at all and just going in and, and doing 275, um, you know, both wraps and sleeves. I mean, it, and it's funny how, how we evolve in our, in our, our thinking because, at first, I knew about geared lifting, you know, mm-hmm. single ply, multi ply, and I kind of didn't like have an interest. Um, and I, one of the, my buddies back in the day had done a lot of the geared lifting. He was like, "Oh, we're going to get you in a suit eventually. We're going to get you in a suit eventually." And I'm like, "No, you're not. <laughs> like, <laughs> not that, that doesn't appeal to me. No disrespect to it. I respect it tremendously. Um, but and now that I'm also I'm with Elite, Elite FTS, you know, and and so I've learned it and. And I, well, the multiply still doesn't appeal to me just because all the, it's so much involved. It just seems like more than I'd want to deal with. Um, I would be interested in trying single ply, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just, you know, see what it's like. Cause like I tried wraps and it was like, that's, you know, the, the first level of like mechanical advantage, so to speak. Mm-hmm. 
briefs would probably be like the next step, but single ply would be another, you know, step in that continuum. And yeah, just see, see how it goes. You know I mean? It's kind of, it's fun to try new things. So I would try that not with any like aspirations of, of a, of a number, but just to see how that goes. So those are like the, the powerlifting specific goals beyond that. I mean, you know, I've done some strongman competitions. I don't, people have asked me, Oh, why I don't, want to pursue that more and there's a number of reasons for that um but i'm actually more interested in bodybuilding i'd actually like to try uh try bodybuilding i mean that's almost getting more to my roots you know what i mean like i was obsessed with arnold you know Mm -hmm. who did who he did powerlifting but obviously he was more of a bodybuilder you know uh, ronnie coleman's an idol of mine um i just like to try that and um you know and then and then from there also like you know father time always wins, you know, father time will continue. And so there will get to a point where, you know, I can't compete at the highest level. And, uh, you know, and I want, I, I do want to kind of live a somewhat of a long life. Uh, sure. I mean, a lot of people getting back to the policing, a lot of people don't know that the average life expectancy of a cop is like 10 to 15 years lower than the average life expectancy of a human. And that's not counting like kill getting killed in line of duty. So I get it that, you know, there's, I've got forces against me. Um, in terms of that, but, um, you know, I, eventually I'll, I'll lose weight. I want to drop weight, uh, cause it's healthier to do that. And also, I mean, get back into grappling. I mean, I, I was doing Brazilian jujitsu for a long time. I missed that. I see my friends doing it. I'm, you know, I miss wrestling kind of various activities that I'd like to do as well. You know, as you mentioned, you know, going head to head with Yuri, you know, you've got Kevin Oak. I mean, you've got these monsters, you know, in, in your weight class and the weight classes above you. Um, and you mentioned Jamal. I don't know if we've ever seen someone deadlift so remarkably like Jamal Brown. Like, just making a thousand pounds look like it's nothing. Um, but you know, I know Animal Pack is so specific about the athletes that they they sponsor, they partner with, and I wonder just how that network has looked like for y'all because it does look like it's such a, a tight knit group. Yeah. Well, so that you know, I I mean, I've been a fan of animals since, I mean, since before I ever thought about powerlifting. So, um, and so it's always been an honor to be part of that company now. Um, and, and I do like that. I mean, there is a brotherhood, you know I mean? Or you could say like brother sisterhood, it would be siblinghood. I don't know. Like, sure. cause, they, cause there's, there's female athletes too, you know? And, um, but we're all, we're all tight, you know, like I, I feel at any given moment I could reach out to any single one of them and any of them could reach out to me with, you know, a question or, or, or anything, you know, and, uh, so there's a lot of mutual respect there. Um, and I like that. I like the, the selectivity, uh, of, you know, who they take, it's all good people. Um, not like hotheads or anything like that. Um, good, like all around people. And so, but especially like when we talk about Jamal, it's interesting that, you know, and probably out of most athletes, like I've interacted with him the least, you know, like, and mm-hmm. so, I look forward to getting to know him better, but with, you know, Dan green, you know, my, you know, mentor and coach and all that stuff, like he's been with them for a long time. And now me and Jamal, all three of us compete at 242. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, and so like, and all three, I believe all three of us have the potential to like, to have the total world record. Like all three of us have had the total world record and all, you know, and so it, it's pretty cool. Uh, that, that kind of, cohesiveness mm-hmm. and um but it's also cool that i think we we support each other you know like we may compete head to head 
there's been a few times when Dan and I were like supposed to be head to head, but due to injuries and other stuff, it didn't happen. But there was never a, a doubt that we weren't going to hundred percent support each other. Um, so, you know, the same goes with Jamal. Like we, we absolutely welcome him to the animal family with open arms. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's remarkable. You know, I see people even who are affiliated with animal that it really is. It feels like that's the highest echelon. Like if you, if you've made it to animal, like you've made it in the industry and obviously there's always like, that's not it. Like there's always going to be steps forward, but that there is a feeling of man, animal follows 20 people. Like that's all they're working with. They, <laughs> those are, those are their athletes, you know, and they're just known for being the best. Absolutely. Well, and I, and I say, especially within the, within the world of powerlifting, you know, somewhat bodybuilding too, but like, and when I tell people, so I, I recommend animal supplements, obviously I'm, I'm sponsored by them, but I was recommending them before I was ever sponsored by them. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell people, and you can ask people offline, I recommend this, these things, um, certain supplements. You know, there's a lot that I don't use, but there are ones that I do that I'm very like believe in. And, um, you know, there's some supplements where a, a lot of, t- you know, lots of companies have a pre-workout, lots of companies have a whey protein, lots of companies have a, um, carb, whatever, you know, a lot of the different genres are out there. But what I tell people is like, okay, well, think about what sport are you into? What sport do you believe in or compete in or want to support? And so within the powerlifting community, obviously people say powerlifting. And so then I say, okay, well, if you got 10 companies selling whey protein and it's all roughly the same price, it may, you should go with the company that supports your sport. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like that should be a hashtag, support your sport. You know, like, and I don't know of any company that supports powerlifting and powerlifters more than animal. You know what I mean? There are other companies that do it, no doubt, and I have nothing against them at all. But you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Animal because they they sponsor more powerlifters than anybody else. I mean, they sponsor bodybuilders. They support those sports. You know, they're at the Arnold every year. They're at other events. They sponsor meets. Boss of Bosses every year, one of the biggest meets. Like, mm-hmm. so if if we want our sport to grow, we need to kind of put our money where our mouth is and, and funnel it. And, and, you know, I don't care as heck if you go with uh, Redcon or so, you know, I mean, they, they sponsor some powerlifters, other companies do, Nutribio, whatever. But I feel like Animal is the, the, the monolithic, like, powerlifting company, you know. And so, you know, it, it makes sense, like, to support them. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, kind of on the back end, you know, I, I like to ask people three questions. And we can kind of rapid fire go through them. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, podcast itself, Faith Fitness and French Toast. So, obviously, everyone I bring on is the fitness expert. That's obviously what the meat of the <laughs> podcast is. Yeah. Um, but something I'm always interested to, to hear people's stories is the faith aspect. Yes. You know, I, I never presume that someone is religious in any atmosphere, but I recognize that everyone, regardless of their walk of life, has something to offer. Um, and and I think that their beliefs of the world around them really play into that. And so I wonder for you, what is your own personal faith, if anything, played into your training and kind of your view of the industry? Okay, so and and. <clears throat> First of all, I, I respect the heck out of that because, I mean, I think that's the attitude that I wish everybody had, you know, where it's because, you know, we live in, you know, look through history. I mean, wars have been fought over disagreements on yeah. faith, you know, religion, you know, terrible things have been committed. Now, obviously, great things have also been done. But the more we can kind of accept and, I, and it, it still ties back to this whole argument today about the, the, the police stuff is and I posted about this. It's like I wish we could accept our common humanity. And realize that there are differences. You know what I mean? Like someone there, someone may have followed the Baptist faith. Someone may follow the Episcopalian faith. Someone may follow the Jewish faith. You know, yes, those are different belief systems, 
but ultimately they're all united by some type, some version of the golden rule, some version of be a good person, you know, Mm -hmm. some version of of do no harm, you know, and and I think everybody believes that, you know, I mean, except for maybe like a very small sliver of of terrible people, you know? So like, (laughs) so even like the person who was so militant about hating the police I still believe that that person is, is a good person. That's a good human being, you know, and they want what's what they think is best for the world. So like, let's not hate each other over this. Let's not unfriend everybody because they disagree on that specific topic. Let's like do our best to work with each other. And it may come to a point where you just have to agree to disagree. I mean, that's happening a lot too, but let's be, let's be civilized about it. So, so yeah, so I, I appreciate that question. I appreciate the way you worded it. Um, so faith with me, it's, it's a complex topic because, you know, just my background, I mean, I was raised, you know, you could say kind of diet Christian <laughs> in the sense, <laughs> in, in the sense of, um, you know, I celebrated Chris, Christmas and Easter and all that stuff. You know, we had a, a Bible in the home. Uh, we had the Christians, the children's version of the Bible in the home too, which made the stories a little more accessible, uh, when I was younger. Um, my mom, uh, is from the Midwest, uh, very Catholic background. Uh, my dad is from the South, uh, Methodist background. Um, and actually on my dad's side, um, pretty much every Herbert before him was a, was a Methodist minister. Oh, wow. So yeah. So my dad grew up in the church in North Carolina. They, they every five years moved around to a different uh, parish. Uh, my great, great grandfather, uh, was a, a Methodist minister in South Carolina. Uh, there's a, there's a church down there actually named after him, the, the Chesley C. Herbert Memorial uh, church. Um, so it, it's pretty deeply ingrained in me. Um, you know, that being said, both of my parents were kind of the renegades of their family in that they're the only ones, they both had siblings. They're the only ones who kind of went West, went to California. Um, and, and also they kind of left the, the faith, you know, somewhat, you know, my, my mom doesn't practice Catholicism. My dad doesn't practice Meth- Methodism, but, I, you know, I think that I'll I'll put it this way. In in my time on this earth, sometimes I I feel like the most Christian people are not Christians. And and what I mean by that is, and so what my dad always taught me was to try and live your life like Jesus, the man, Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth. You know what I mean? That's the, you know, the, the blessed are the meek, you know, let he who's without sin cast the first stone. You know what I mean? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. You know, that kind of stuff. Live your life that way. You know, the, the, as you put it, supernatural or magical stuff, you know, the concepts of heaven and hell or or turning fish into bread and, and water into wine, that kind of stuff. You know, that's great, you know, but, but let's, let's focus on the here and now, the earthly aspects, being a good person, being a decent human being. And uh, living with humility, um, living with charity, and so that's that's kind of been central to me. And so I, th- I see people who embrace that lifestyle as kind of being like true Christians in a sense, because you know Christian breaks down from the name Christ. Right. Um, and you know, there's people who may claim to be very Christian, but they spend Monday through Saturday living like a total jackass and then Sunday Sunday they say a few Hail Marys or they go to confession and think it's all good. Well, fuck that, you know, excuse, excuse my French, but I mean it. Um, you know, I got no time for, you know, hypocrites. Um, so yeah. And so, and you know, faith is, is a complex thing in that to an extent we can say, okay, faith is the belief in something without evidence, you know, and that's, you know, that's a, a fairly simplistic view of it because, 
you know, some people will say, okay, don't ne- have no faith, you know, only accept things based on evidence. And trust me, I am a major proponent, as we talked about earlier, of using you know, facts and evidence to believe in things. But there's levels of faith too. You know, like for example, I've never seen Jupiter. You know what I mean? But I, I, I defer to expertise. Another thing I mm-hmm. talked about earlier to the astronomers, the astrophysicists, these brilliant folks who spend years and years and years studying and have shown pictures. So there is a little bit of evidence, you know, of, oh, this is Jupiter. This is out there so many, you know, millions of miles away. And so I have faith that they're right. You know, but they, they've backed it up enough to give me that faith, you know? Um, so I think, you know, faith intertwines in our lives a lot. It intertwines with rationality. You know what I mean? It's faith is not, you know, um, inherently irrational and rationality is not inherently anti-faith. You know what I mean? We have to find a blend there. Um, and we do intrinsically too. I mean, it's like, you know, when people claim to be, you know, some people seem to be very anti-science, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And I'll be like, Oh, you're on your smartphone, aren't you? Like, yeah. I'm like, you realize that science created that freaking yeah. phone in your hand you know what I mean? that you depend on you know what i mean you're like oh oh i don't believe in science well well okay well you're microwaving your food right now do you know what created that microwave uh science yeah, yeah. The, the scientific <laughs> right. method you know right. um and so i don't know that's so that's kind of my feeling there is like i don't care what and that's where i don't like labels you know i'm not mm-hmm. a huge fan of organized religion sure i'm a fan of uh, and I believe, I believe, you know, faith and religion is a very personal thing. Yeah. So that's why I have my beliefs, but I won't necessarily like proselytize, you know, I won't necessarily sure. like, evangelize about it. Um, I think it just comes down to whatever you want to label it, whether it's atheist, agnostic, you know, Baptist, Pentecostal, uh, Catholic, Mormon, I don't care. Scientologist, you know, right. be a good person, treat others the way you want to be treated, consider others, people's feelings, realize your own limitations, have humility, be humble. Um, work hard, uh, try and make the world a better place uh, when it's all said and done. You know, that's, it's, it seems basic. And I, and I had a post about this with the whole crisis today. It's like, I think all these problems go away if we embrace that, like that ideology, that way of living. And people say, Oh, no, no, no. no let, let's be accountable. You know what I mean? We all make choices. We have our, our, our brains. We're sentient beings. We can choose the way we behave. You know what I mean? And, and we can't, pass the buck or, or kick the can down the road and say, Oh, some system made me behave this way or some entity authoritarian entity made me behave this way. Yeah. No, I think that's a good word. It's like, there's a lot of wisdom, you know, what you just said. Well, you know, my favorite question to ask people, uh, has to retain the food, you know, there okay. was a run- French toast, French toast, French toast. French toast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so, there was a running joke for the first two seasons. I never mentioned food. I never did in any oh. of the interviews. I never said anything. And people were like, why haven't you asked the question? So well, every, everybody uh, went, everyone went hungry for that question. Yeah. They, they went hungry. They never got to eat what they were eating. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I wonder, this is my question. If for the rest of your life, you'd only eat one breakfast food, what would it be? Oh, geez. Okay. So you know, part of that, the the kind of nutrition geek in me is going to come out on that, where like you know, uh, you know, I know to survive we need proteins and fats. We do not need sure. carbohydrates. So I mean, my automatically right there, I, I lean towards like bacon or sausage or steak or actually or maybe even eggs. Um, nice thing about eggs is there's the variety there of how. Yeah, I guess it depends. Like if you say I could, I could say beef. In which case, mm-hmm. then it could be like sure. <laughs> sausage, ribeye, 
tri-tip, porter, you know, that kind of stuff, skirt steak, flank steak. I mean, I, so if, I'd say beef if I can. If I have to get more specific than that, I might say like eggs, I guess. You know? Sure. Well, so taking away the nutritionist elite athlete and going okay. to, to, to the kid that's inside of you that's like, oh, man, it's 1 a.m., I'm really hungry. Oh. You know, what what's the what is the completely unhealthy would definitely kill you in a few years like options you go for man okay so man so that so i love breakfast food i i I go to diners that's probably my most commonly free well not in the last few months because they've been closed but (laughs) (laughs) but um i love breakfast food any time of the day and i mean when i was in at school in north carolina in the south we go to waffle house Mm-hmm. You know, I, I love that place. Unfortunately, I don't have it out here. But, um, man, every time I go there, I have this. There's this split in me where it's like I want the either the pancakes, waffles, or French toast, or I want the you know the more salty like the chicken fried steak and eggs, right. or just regular steak and eggs, or an, or an omelet, or a scramble, or something like that. So there is there is a pull towards the carb stuff though, and sure, and from there, <laughs> like deciding between pancakes, waffles, French toast. I would, oh man, I would, I'd probably say maybe French toast, honestly. And not just because of the name oh, of the podcast. Like, to the podcast. I, yeah, I know, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, shameless. Um, it just, there's more like varieties there. You know what I mean? Like, like pan, you know, I mean, man, it, it's a tough one. I mean, it's definitely a win, win, win situation. You know what I mean? Sure. You can't go wrong with any of them, <laughs> but, uh, sure. I'll go with, I'll go with, uh, French toast. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, kind of my last question for you, you know, in the midst of us, you know, the country reopening and, and starting to think, well, California, maybe not so much, but for a lot of, yeah. a lot yeah. of the country reopening. Le- leave it to California, man. To- yeah. <laughs> you guys will be locked down forever, Back man. Of the pack, mean, but anyway. Well, you know, as the country sees the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, of being able to go back and feeling like you can go to five guys without having to wear a mask over your face, you know what would be your words of advice, you know, for people jumping back into training, you know, just from your own experience of how to really grab the bull by the horns and move forward. Okay. So, and I'm in a a similar boat there too, because, um, I had surgery recently, so I am actually coming back to training from kind of a a pretty detrained level. So, um, I would almost say that the, the, the metaphor of grabbing the bull by the horns is maybe not even apropos, like maybe, grab the bull by like part of one of the horns yeah (laughs) in the sense of like don't go balls to the wall full throttle and and i've made that mistake so many times uh and it's tempting but kind of step back and realize that okay from a detrained state which a lot of people are in and even if people have been doing say body weight exercises which is kudos to them once you get heavier weight on you that's going to be a different stimulus that's going to be a change you are detrained from the heavy weight and so if you overdo it, you're going to be very sore and it's going to hamper your ability to get back in the gym the next day or in two days and, and continue that progress. So like absolutely embrace the kind of mentality of it's a marathon, not a sprint kind of, I would say go into your first few workouts without like a program, you know what I mean? Because you can, or if it's a program, make sure it's minimalist. Um, because don't don't feel compelled to oh I've got to hit this weight I've got to hit these reps make it kind of as much of a low pressure workout as possible accumulate maybe two weeks of those and your body will naturally adapt and then you can start going into more of a regimented okay you know 
goal specific type training. Um, yeah, nutrition. I mean, hopefully people have maintained decent nutrition over these times. Um, you know, at the same time with, with, you know, places opening up, there may be that temptation to just go, go ham on, on, and you know what? And I don't know what I say at my, I haven't really prepared for that question, but I would say, honestly, have fun. You know what I mean? Cause, cause think about it this way. One, we want our economy to get back. So I say go out, enjoy whatever restaurants you want, whatever diners you want. Yeah. Over this time, I've been doing a lot of takeout delivery stuff because I want to – one, I'm lucky that I've been able to keep working and keep having income. Um, and I want to kind of pay it forward. And I think we should need to continue that attitude to get our country back on track. But also think about it this way. When we are doing that training uh, – we need to fuel. We need carbohydrates. We need, you know, calories. You know, uh, not necessarily carbohydrates, but sure. Like, if we can really eat a lot, consume a lot, that'll probably help our recovery mm-hmm. as our bodies are adjusting to the stress of training. So, like, kind of let's kill all those birds with with one stone. And yeah, eat, eat what you want. Eat a lot. Have fun. Go to go to the restaurants and, and but just be like moderate in training. And then when you feel that soreness starting to like dissipate, especially the DOMS, kind of not be as much of a thing. Mm-hmm. then start being uh, regimented about the, the rigor of the training. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I think it's practical advice because I know a lot of people are going to go out and be like, no, you know what? I'm, I'm going balls to the wall. So, Oh, yeah, just, and, I, and, and I've been there. You know, this is not a holier-than-thou thing. Like, I'm literally telling myself this every time I touch a weight <laughs> for yeah. the next, you know, month or so. Um, so, yes, trust me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, folks, you've heard it here first. This has been a great conversation with Andrew Herbie Herbert. Uh, you can find him uh, on Instagram, Herbie the Love Bug. Uh, show that guy some love, as the name says. Uh, continue to watch this space and uh, continue to get advice from him. With that, folks, that's all we've got. Hey, y'all, if you love that episode and you're craving just a little bit more, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify at Faith Fitness and French Toast, or visit us at anchor.fm forward slash Moses Allwood for full interviews, trailers, and more for the rest of the season. We're finishing the season strong on June 16th with Indy City Barbell owner Garrett Fear and June 20th with the greatest powerlifter of all time, Ed Cohen. So don't forget to turn on your post notifications on Instagram and stay connected on your platform of choice to be the first to hear of season four guest announcements and early episode releases. With that, I'm Moses Allwood. Thanks as always for listening. I'll see you all next week.